0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Today's scripture comes from the book of Psalms. Psalms is poetry and prose and prayer that has been spoken and prayed for about 3,000 years. Psalms are lament and praise to individual as well as the community or the nation. The book is divided into five parts with the writings of the psalms attributed to King David. Psalm 23 is a well-known psalm for the comfort that it brings people during struggling times or in mourning. My favorite scripture is Psalm 139 where it says, Lord, you know me, you know when I sit down and when I stand up, you knit me together in my mother's womb. On Ash Wednesday, we pray together Psalm 55, create in me a clean heart. Today's Psalm 26 is an entrance psalm, something that would be read in preparation for entering the temple. I invite you to read it together with me today. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and heart. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in faithfulness to you. I do not sit with the worthless, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the company of evildoers and do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, singing aloud a song of thanksgiving and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the house in which you dwell and the place where your glory abides. Do not sweep away the sinners, nor my life with the bloodthirsty, those in whose hands are evil devices and those whose hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great congregation. I will bless the Lord. Amen.
1: As we continue our Everybody In series, we are asking the question, who do we need on our bus? Who is invited at our tables? As we think about our circles of relationships, our communities, even our church, who do we need more and more to center in our conversations? Those that may, in fact, be excluded. The idea being that at some point our relationships should look a little bit like the kind of relationships that Jesus had in his own time and our communities should look a lot like the people that Jesus gathered around himself in his own time. Jesus made room at his table for those who were often excluded and overlooked those that had no place of belonging for any number of really bad reasons. Maybe they weren't religious enough. Maybe they weren't educated enough. Maybe they didn't have enough influence or wealth or power. Maybe they weren't Jewish enough or Jewish at all. Maybe they were Greeks or Romans. Maybe they were tax collectors or prostitutes. Any number of people could come and try to get into the circle of Jesus and found a place of immediate belonging. Think about this in your own life. Have you ever been in one of those circumstances in which you found yourself not really belonging? Just there, but not quite at home with the people you're with. Well, Jesus tore down these walls of unbelonging Uh, so that everybody was in even as we saw two weeks ago the skeptic the skeptic was included at the table of Jesus, that one that we saw two weeks ago in the face and person of Nicodemus who was asking so many questions that everyone else was getting annoyed because he was asking the questions everyone wanted to ask but was afraid to ask in your own circle of relationships do you have a skeptic who can help Keep you honest and help you dare to answer or ask the questions that are, that are frightening or that are, are unwanted in today's world. With Jesus, everybody is in, even as we saw last week, the child. That is not just the little ones of young age, but certainly them too, but all of those in this world who are like close to the ground and humble those who by being so close to the ground are overlooked and neglected and yet have a word of humility, even simplicity that they can offer us and offer our faith. Do you have a child or one like a child at your table to help you build an honest faith and a simple faith? Who else do we need at our tables? The longer I live, the more I've come to discover that there's one type of person I need at my table, especially when the world seems unfair and life gets difficult. I need somebody in my life who can remind me of what matters most. When I lose sight of what might be most important in the world, when I start to turn inward and see only my own needs or my own will, I need somebody in my life who can point me to what's most important, which is doing the will of God. Jesus spoke of these people as the pure in heart. In Matthew 6, in the Beatitudes, he says, as you recall, this list of people who are blessed, blessed are the, and he spoke of the pure of heart. What does Jesus mean by the pure of heart? Purity, at least in our culture, hints of cleanliness, as if a pure heart is a clean and spotless and blameless, dirt-free kind of heart. And this association with cleanliness is is complicated by the fact that in our culture we have this idea that cleanliness is next to godliness. No, it's not. (laughs) Where'd this come from? I read this week America's cultural fascination with cleanliness, like physical cleanliness, actually dates back to the time of the Civil War when some really smart person came up with this idea that if you actually wash your hands with soap and water, you might live a little longer. You might avoid mortality, uh, you know, that's. Uh, I mean, who knew, right? And so from then on, by the end of the Civil War, cleanliness was, had this sort of patriotic appeal to it. If you were clean, you were a true American, and not only that, You are morally good also. Even today, have you noticed our supermarkets are dedicated, really, to selling only two kinds of products? The things that we eat and the things that we clean with, right? I went to the market the other day, there's a whole aisle, I'm not kidding, a whole aisle dedicated to just bleach. (laughs) Another one dedicated to antibacterial soaps. And there's a whole half aisle dedicated to extra whitening toothpaste. As if just white teeth aren't quite good enough. Some of you buy that stuff, I know. Or <laughs> clean freaks, I bought a shower cleaner last week that's so effective at cleaning, I looked at the back label, it said, uh, do not use this product on glass, porcelain, ceramic tile, Mexican tile, tumbled marble, grout, fiberglass, or plastic. In other words, it's a shower cleaner that you can't actually use to clean your shower with. My favorite of all time. this doesn't actually clean things, it just makes things smell better. It's that stuff you spray on your kids and your dogs and whatever to to get the stink to go away. I won't name the product, but we are clean freaks. But Jesus wasn't talking about this kind of cleanliness on the outside. He was talking about a, a different kind of purity. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. And he followed that by saying, for they shall see. God. See God. For Jesus, the pure in heart weren't those who were morally or, uh, or spiritually blameless or, or spotless. In ancient times, the heart was the seat of human perception. Now today we associate the heart with the seat of human emotion, with feeling. We say, oh, my heart broke. Or, I had a heartwarming experience, or my heart aches for that person. But Jesus saw the heart, like most of his Jewish contemporaries, not as the organ for emotion and feeling, but the organ of perception. So that we, by using our hearts, could see the will of God. The heart, in other words, is like an antenna. Uh, It's given to us to orient ourselves toward the will and purposes of God. So when God speaks or moves, we're attentive to it. We navigate the world through the eyes of the heart, as we might say that phrase, the eyes of the heart. To have a pure heart then is to see clearly, to see clearly where God is leading you, where God is alluring you to act. It's to perceive and pursue the will of God. This is why the, the pure of heart, says Jesus, are blessed. Because they can see what others who are driven by self-will or the will of the world cannot see. They see the will of God and they do it, even when it's hard. A pure heart means singleness of focus. means keeping our eyes in one constant direction, which is the will of God. The opposite of a pure heart is a divided heart, then. A, div- a heart that sees so many different loyalties and has so many different uh, things that are important to it that it's never at peace with itself. And when we have divided hearts, we create a lot of peace in our unpeace in our lives and unpeace in our world and in our relationships. Why? Because we lose sight of what matters most to us or what should matter most, which is always the will of God. It's easy to lose sight of what matters most when the world pushes back at us, when the world uh, argues and, and, and fights with us over, over what we're trying to do and, and is opposed to the will of God. Uh, the writer of our reading today from Psalm 23 uh, is going through one of those experiences. Now, understand the psalm. All you have to do is begin with the very first line of the psalm that you all read today. It was beautiful. He begins... The psalm by saying, vindicate me, O Lord. This writer, maybe it's King David, it's attributed to David, but it could be anyone, it could be you. This writer has been falsely accused of having done something, and he's asking God in that opening line, vindicate me, to clear his good name and to release him from the burden of blame that he doesn't deserve. What has he done to be... Accused falsely, we don't know. But perhaps the second line of this psalm gives us a little bit of a clue. He says, For I have walked in my integrity. I have have trusted in the Lord without wavering. You can read it one of two ways. Vindicate me because I've been doing all this good stuff for you, God. That's one way. But another way is to say, Vindicate me because I've trusted you In this one moment, i banked on your goodness. Now vindicate me. My integrity put me in a place where I was falsely accused. The psalmist has acted with integrity and with purity of heart and clarity of vision. He's acted on what God's called him to do, and it got him into trouble. Have you ever done the right thing and suffered the consequences for it? that were unfair? There's nothing in the world that's more painful than doing the right thing and then having others question you or attack you for having done it. Years ago I got a call from a friend of mine, uh, who a former parishioner in another church. He, he, he called me because he was going through this difficult experience. He, he had to terminate one of his employees this employer, employee was very popular, very successful sales guy, the oldest, longest-tenured guy on his team. But on a couple of different occasions, he crossed a boundary with a couple of female colleagues who reported his behavior. And The behavior was abhorrent, and, and it violated policy. It violated every moral sort of boundary whatsoever. And so he only had one choice, to fire him. He fired him and yet in the process he in order to protect those that had been harmed he couldn't reveal why he fired him to anybody else. That's common practice I know but still sometimes word gets out this is what I had to do. In this case he, he couldn't do it in order to protect those that had already been hurt. In the days that followed he was accused by his colleagues by so many people in the company accused that he was acting out of vengeance or vindictiveness or ulterior motives. His integrity had been called into question by the ones that he loved and respected the most. He called me really hurting. He said, "I, I did the right thing. and The right thing should never hurt this bad. He said, I acted with integrity, but everything I've done is now being called into question. He said, I could tell the truth and save my good name but then I would hurt those that have already been hurt enough he said it's not supposed to work this way when you do what's right he asked me on the phone as his pastor, former pastor he said just tell me something, anything that will make me feel a little better I could think of only one thing to say blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God I won't tell you what he said in response to that, but it wasn't PG-13. But later he called back and said, thank you. I just needed to be reminded that I did the right thing for the sake of God. The writer of Psalm 26 reminds us we need people like that in the world and in our lives because there are so many folks who who just don't want to pay attention to doing the right thing because it. It does hurt sometimes. It doesn't always come back to you as a great reward for doing the right thing. So these, this psalm that we have, the psalmist gives us some guideposts for how we might learn from those who walk with integrity. That we might walk with integrity ourselves. How do we see and act in the will of God like the psalmist has done? The first guidepost I think he leaves for us is that in the end, all we can ever count on is the steadfast love of God. And that's always enough. The psalmist says, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in faithfulness to you. This purity of heart, he speaks of the eyes, the clarity of vision, helps the writer see what he describes as steadfast love of God. In Hebrew, this word for steadfast love, I think it's one of the most important words in all of Hebrew scripture. The word is hesed. It speaks of God's utter faithfulness to humanity that's grounded in a covenant. God says, this is how I will always act. You can trust me on this. It's a bulletproof. It's a fail proof. It's eternal, rock-solid, unwavering commitment. Steadfast love, hesed. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament theologian, he describes, has said this way, he describes it as God's tenacious solidarity. I like that. Tenacious solidarity. I'm with you. Always. One of the best statements of faith I think I've ever heard came from the mouth of a little child just last week, you saw it if you were here on the screen, little Davis Browning, as he was talking to those third grade students who were getting their Bibles, he said in that video, he said, the Bible is a message about how God has your back. That's spot on. The best theologian in the house right there. God. Has your back, has said, tenacious solidarity. Barbara Brown Taylor, the great preacher, writes about a friend of hers who was visiting another friend uh, in California, and they met at the airport. They went to the parking lot and they both got in the car, but as the friend opened the door, he opened it a little too um, eagerly and it slammed into this brand new red sports car right next and there was no damage done but it gave it a good whack and the problem was the driver and owner of that car happened to be in the car at the time (laughs) there was no harm done but he jumped out and said what in the blankety blank did you just do and um, put a finger in the guy's chest and the other friend got out of the car and said hey don't, don't you talk to my friend that way can see no harm's been done here your car's fine and the man said furiously I'm talking to him not you buddy and the friend said yeah well when you're talking to him you're talking to me tenacious solidarity God has our backs It allows us, if we believe in that, to get into some good trouble for a good cause or for good people. There's another guidepost that the pure in heart leave for us, and that's the call to resist the cynicism of the world, the world that says, what's the point in doing the right thing, when it always comes back at you anyway. The writer of Psalm 26 says, I do not sit with the worthless, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the company of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. It sounds very dramatic, and, but this idea of sitting, it's not like sitting like you are right now, just for an hour or so. This sitting in the Hebrew connotes the sense of being in one place for a really, really long time, like residing in a place. And what happens when you reside in one place for so long, you you're likely to, to take on the characteristics and the condition of the environment itself. And what's the great condition of our world? It's cynicism today. What's the point? It doesn't do any good anyway. Cynicism. Because he sees through the eyes of the heart the will of God, he, uh, he can overcome that cynicism. Uh, in Southern California, where I'm from, if you've ever lived there for any period of time yourself, you know that there really is only one annual weather event. Uh, and it's not rain, by the way. Um, it's called the Santa Ana winds. The devil winds. They, they come out of the northeast. They, and they head westward over and toward the ocean. And it happens about every time this particular year in the fall. What happens is they blow so hard that it'll turn over semis on the on the highway, it'll, it'll uproot uh, little mobile homes and, and old trees and tumbleweeds are flying at you at 90 miles an hour, and it's, it's a real joy uh, to go through fall. There is a reason they call them double winds, by the way. I mean, that's, that's pretty devilish. It's horrible. But after two or three days of that, if they don't actually start a wildfire or, or, or advance them, what happens is this. You, you wake up and you, you go outside. And the sky is never clearer. The air is never more pure. The smog has been pushed out over the Pacific and you can see for miles. It's a reminder that when you live in one place for so long, you forget what it can look like. You begin to take on the debris and the conditions of the environment. Only when God's winds blow through and we can see clearly the will of God. When that happens, uh, we have this ability to, to reset and to say, I'm not going to be cynical. I, I can see more clearly now that to do the right thing is, for its own sake, a good thing. There may not be any reward for doing it. In fact, there may even be pushback for doing it. But like the psalmist, we walk with integrity anyway. And notice that the psalmist doesn't grow cynical He doesn't throw up his hands in resignation. He doesn't say, what's the point? Instead, instead he seeks out those spaces where the air is clean. He says it in verse 8. I love the house in which you dwell and the place where your glory abides. He's talking about the temple, the sanctuary of God. Reminder here that to be pure of heart is to be in spaces like this, as often as we can in holy sacred places apart from the world because it's here that we begin to take on the characteristics of the holy so that we can then go back out into the world and live with hope and not cynicism. If we fail to do that, if we fail to leave that world of cynicism, we just take on the condition of the world. Finally, the pure in heart give us one other guidepost for living And that's that we ought to leave this house of the Lord and return to the world changed. He says, but as for me, I walk in my integrity. My foot stands on level ground. Integrity, level ground. In other words, how does the faith that we profess here on Sunday morning?" translate to practical action on Monday morning? Is there a coherence between our actions and our beliefs? <laughs> Years ago, I was meeting a friend of mine for a cup of coffee, and I want you to think about this storefronts. three of them. In the middle was this coffee house, a very popular coffee house. Um, we were having coffee there, and to the right of us was this uh, nutrition chain store, uh, the kind that you can go and, and buy all kinds of, you know, um, supplements and performance-enhancing drugs, right? That was, that's a joke. <laughs> <clears throat> performance-enhancing drugs, yes! <laughs> On the other side of this uh, uh, coffeehouse was a uh, donut shop, right? And you see the contrast. A donut shop over here and a, a GNC over here. And um, we were having coffee and talking and this, this guy comes out of the, uh, the nutrition store and he takes his chain, he locks the door. He was like the manager or something and he was dressed in one of those Lycra t-shirts that showed everything. He was, he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, six pack abs and guns and he looked like the kind of person who not only worked at this place but also ate there. And, um, but he walked out and he walked right past us and then darted right into the donut store right (laughs) and we just watched him go in and about three minutes later he came out with this giant um, apple fritter and a gallon of chocolate milk and, and we just stopped and we laughed at him actually we literally laughed at him and he goes yep you got me right are are actions consistent and coherent do they correspond to our beliefs so that we can walk with integrity. That's integrity, to walk according to our beliefs. And when we do that, people see not us. They see God. We are the walking testimonies of God's glory in this world when we live and act with integrity. Johann Sebastian Bach he was known to write on many of his finished works, either above the top of the score or down below the initials A-M-D-G. You can look this up if you want, A-M-D-G. These initials were shorthand for Ad Majorum de Glorium or Gloria. Translated, of course, that means for the greater glory of God alone. Are these letters written on the signature, on the score of the life that you live? Are you inscribing these simple letters, A-M-D-G, above everything you do, above everything you create, above everything you say and believe, and everyone you touch? The takeaways for today, purity of heart, is to will the will of God. In every circumstance, we can count on God's tenacious solidarity. And when we walk with integrity, we bring glory to God. Amen.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.